0: Hello and welcome to Katie Piper's Extraordinary People. And right now, we're recording in extraordinary circumstances. Normally, um, I'd sit down face-to-face with someone with an amazing story to tell. But at the moment, because of lockdown, we're meeting from our very own homes. My guest today has truly lived an extraordinary life. You might know her best as a TV cook a judge from The Great British Menu or, of course, from the nation's favourite TV programme, The Great British Bake Off. You might know her as having established the highly prestigious Leaf School of Food and Wine. Behind all of that, though, she's lived an extraordinary personal life, which she recently opened up about in a Channel 4 documentary, Prue Leaf, Journey with My Daughter. That introduction is barely a nutshell of this lady's story. I'm so excited to say that my guest today is Prue Leith. Well, thank you, Prue, for agreeing to do this. Um, I spent last night, um, hello, I I spent last night watching your Channel 4 documentary. Um, And, you know, I I watch you on telly anyway, I watch you on Bake Off. Um, So I was really keen to speak to you. Uh, and it was interesting watching the programme because, you know, one thing I really like about you and admire about you is that I I feel like I know you because you're very honest and frank. Um, and I Sometimes I feel like too you're... frank. Well, I think you're very no-nonsense, which I quite like that approach to life. And I'm like you that I don't really uh, cry very easily or a lot, but I actually cried at your documentary.
1: Which oh, is... well, I'm
0: glad about that. Because yeah. I
1: have to say, I i mean, this documentary is all about my adopted daughter trying to find her birth mother. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so, um, and I'm very sort of practical and my whole attitude was, well, why not? Let's go and have a look and Cambodia will be lovely and I'll get to know the country a bit better and I'll have two weeks with my daughter um, without her husband or her little boy or my other family. And it'll all be fine, and the chances of finding her are pretty, or any family at all, are pretty slim. But mm-hmm. um, she wants to do it, so why wouldn't I go? Um, mm-hmm. And of course, I, it became such an emotional journey. And what I wasn't prepared for was, I'm not, as as I said in the in the documentary, I'm not a woman who cries. <laughs> and there I was, mm. I mean, doing far too much crying. But um, yeah. Well, at least it was genuine, you know, I mean, sometimes one feels on television that, you know, that the producers want um, the contestants or whatever it is to burst into tears
0: Mm -hmm. because it
1: makes good telly.
0: It's contrived. Well, I told
1: them right at the beginning, if you think this is going to be a weepy, I'm not that kind of woman. Mm -hmm. Of course, it ended up a a bit of a weepy. (laughs)
0: What made you after all these years? I mean, you know, your daughter's an adult. Like you said, she's got her own family now. Why, after all these years, did you decide that you wanted to delve deeper in, into her background?
1: Well, I didn't decide. I had been, you know, happily, as far as I'm concerned, I've had her since she was 16 months old. I'm her only mother. You know, that it never occurred to me to to want to go looking for her birth parents. But very many adopted children, however happy their childhood is, and Lida's, I'm glad to say, was very happy childhood, do um begin to want to know about their um origins. And Lida she adopted her little boy herself. So she's a she's an adoptive mother as well as an adoptee. Mm-hmm. And when she began to fill in forms for him, they asked questions like if if you want to adopt a baby, they ask questions like, tell us all about your life right from the beginning. Where were you and why did you leave and where did you go? And for the first 16 months of her life, she went to four countries, um, being Mm -hmm. from pillar to post, failing to get adopted. And um, she had no idea where she was or why she'd been. She knew nothing about her origins. And so... um, She wanted to find out. And she's always wanted to find out. And I've always been perfectly okay with that, but rather casual about it. So you didn't have any reservations then? Yeah, I'm not personally interested in it. But once Mm -hmm. I got there and I sort of fell in love with the whole country and the people are just amazing and, and, um, you know, we'd meet people and um, at one point we met a woman who... um, it really looked as if she might be Lida's mother, and I began to really want yes. her to be it, to be the right woman, mm-hmm. because it meant so much to me. I did too, to as the viewer
0: when I was watching. Yeah. yeah, yeah,
1: and it meant so much to her. She was deaf and um, blind, and really poor, and mm-hmm. had uh, fortunately she had a very loving family around her, and she mm-hmm. wanted Lida to be her daughter. Leader wanted it. I wanted it. But there was a little bit of me that sort of said, you know, I'm 80 years old. Do I really want to take on a whole new family? I mean, I have difficulty enough mm-hmm. just of seeing course. my current grandchildren and we're all so busy and, yeah. and happy. And, you know, suddenly to take on a really, I mean, in Cambodia, there's not, su- not such a thing as just taking on one person because they mm-hmm. all have, they're very family attached. And so, Um, Anyway, she turned out not to be the the right woman. Right. But then we went off on another trail, and I I won't say it all because I think a lot of people are still watching on on catch-up. And I don't want to give everything
0: away. Okay, we won't we won't spoil. But I mean, it's a it's a brilliant program. I did wonder, um, although, you know, it seems in life you've always sort of tackled things face on. Did you have any reservations about taking Lida to Cambodia in terms of her experiencing rejection or being taken advantage of? You know, you must have had some some reservations.
1: Uh, No, I didn't. I didn't. I just felt, I mean, I was glad to be going with her because I realized it would be an emotional journey for her, Mm. whatever we found or if we found nothing. Um, And of course, we found a whole lot. We went on some avenues which were dead ends and other avenues which were very productive. So I knew anyway that it would be quite an emotional journey. And um, I wanted to be there, you know, just to hold her hand, really. Yeah. But I didn't realise I'd need hand holding. <laughs> so we rather held each other's hand. Yeah. No, so I quite didn't a, have... in a
0: in a way a bonding experience then.
1: No, uh oh it was. It was definitely that. I mean, I definitely feel I mean I've always been really close to Leader. Um yeah. Oddly enough, closer to leader than I am, I think, to my son, although I adore him and love him just as much. Mm-hmm. But he's his. um I don't see so much of him, perhaps. And um mm-hmm. But Lida and I have always been very close. But uh, yes, certainly yeah. we've been closer. And she's very good at making sure that every day I FaceTime or she FaceTimes her so her grandson will not forget mm-hmm. who his nana is in because they're locked mm-hmm. down in London and I'm in the country. And so yeah. I I see my grandson every afternoon. It's lovely.
0: Oh lovely. Now one of the things that I I Feel that I interpret about you just from watching you on telly um, and when I've been researching you for this episode is I do feel that you don't necessarily always conform to society's ideals. I feel like there's a bit of a naughty kind of streak in you um, that sort of excites me and I suppose inspires me really. I mean, even just taking the adoption to adopt a child that's a different race to you in the 70s um, for some people wouldn't have been the done thing. Um, and would have been a huge risk. Well, I think every child is a
1: risk. I mean, obviously, adoption is a bit of a risk. And my my mother um, said to her, said to me, "Look, all adoption is a risk. You know, you, it's a it's a foreign mm-hmm. child, get, and in, you know, in a different culture, and all the rest of it. But why why have a Cambodian? Because that's you're taking somebody out of a war-torn country who's probably had a traumatic um, first start to life." She's a different colour. She's going to be living in the Cotswolds. She won't see anybody who's not white until she goes to secondary school because prep school is all in a little prep school, local ones all white. And You know, mm-hmm. why, why add to, you know, if you're going to adopt, adopt a child in England who's who's white. But we'd heard about Lida and we just wanted her. And we just thought, you know, there's always a risk with children. You can have your own child and do everything right, be perfect parents. And guess what? At the age of sixteen, they're drug addicts or they got got into the wrong company yep. and they and they go right off the rails. You can't you can't legislate for these things. So we thought, right, mm-hmm. it's always going to be a risk. And in fact, Lida mm-hmm. has been an absolutely wonderful daughter. And I've been really, really lucky because both my children are happy and successful and got their own children. It's all great mm-hmm.
0: how would you describe your own approach to life you know because you sound very open-minded very broad minded how How would you describe yourself as, as a person
1: I think i am broad-minded and i'm um i mean I'm intolerant of some things i'm pretty i I really think unkindness and rudeness are unnecessary mm-hmm. and and I can never can understand why people are rude or unkind because it doesn't make people like them. And I suppose yeah. I always want to be liked, so I I think I'm very mm-hmm. kind and not very often very rude. And um, and I don't like um, well, I don't like all the things people don't like. Most people don't like. I don't like very up up yourself up themselves arrogant um, mm-hmm. people who think they're wonderful.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So, and- uh, but I am I am very. I mean, I'm only unconventional in the sense that people expect any, everybody over 60 to be not quite sitting in the corner knitting, but they don't mm-hmm. expect older women to wear bright colours. They don't expect older women to wear outrageous necklaces, big necklaces or big earrings. Or um, mm-hmm. It's as if as soon as you've passed the menopause, you're supposed to disappear. And I think that's Become ridiculous. Become invisible, Yeah. And it's, rub- it's mm-hmm. rubbish anyway. I get lots and lots of letters from people saying, oh, I used to wear colour, but I don't dare now because, you know, it's not, it's not appropriate. I'm now 60 or 55 or something. Well, fortunately, mm-hmm. fashion is changing. And, and, and thank God, at last, the shops are full of colour, which for years mm-hmm. there was this thing that it had to be cool, you know. And I do agree that very beautiful women can wear just black or just white or just I mean you're wearing just white and you look wonderful. But you're probably oh, twenty five. You. You're incredibly good looking. And you're as slim 37. as anything.
0: <laughs> All right, you're
1: thirty-seven. Well that you. that to me is very, very young. <laughs> and you're very slim. So you can you can do it. But um most of us need a bit of help, you know, and a burst of colour. It it mm. cheers you up. You know, when you see people getting off a train in the winter. It's just a sea of black, just nothing but black um, overcoats, perhaps brown. You might see one red one now because red's become the fashionable colour. But mostly it's pitch black. We're in the middle of winter, for goodness sake. Mm -hmm. That's when we need red and yellow and bright blue. It would be fine to wear black in the middle Mm -hmm. of summer because, you know, you don't need the colour. But I...
0: I think you're right. It does does affect your mind, doesn't it?
1: Yeah, it does. You (laughs) put on the yellow coat in the morning, you feel great. Just cheers you up, yeah.
0: And um, when you talk about this, that this, um, you know, you you don't like rudeness, and and you always choose kindness over rudeness. You know, you've become a huge household name, um, um, on, on Channel Four on Bake Off, and I just wondered how had life changed for you because you know once you become a, a celebrity, you do invite the opinion of everybody, positive and <laughs> negative, and whether that's on the internet or if it's on the street. And I just wondered what your experience had, had been like.
1: Um, well, you know, before I was on Bake Off, I had a sort of tiny degree of of fame, if you like, or celebrity, because I was on Great British Menu. And so foodies or people who watched food programs probably knew me because of Great British Men- Menu. But even now, I don't have the degree of fame that is limiting. You know, if I was as famous as, I don't know, Gwyneth Paltrow or somebody um, or Madonna or... Beyonce, I wouldn't be able to walk down the road without being stopped by everybody. And mm. that would be a terrible, terrible to have that. But I have rather the the nice degree of fame that probably in the supermarket, two or three people will, will stop me. Probably if I go out mm-hmm. to a pub or bar, somebody will recognize me. But it's really kind. I mean, most people are really nice. And I think the right. least I can do is... Be cheerful about it because, A, I enjoy it because I like the attention and, B, Mm -hmm. those are the people that pay my wages. Is he ever practical approach to this? (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I think I owe them something. And if they want to say hello, it's it's really flattering. But I would probably Mm -hmm. change my mind if I had to put up with huge amounts of it. I mean, the only time I've ever Mm -hmm. um, been mobbed was at the Good Food Show which of course, the right. entire audience of the Good Food Show are foodies, so everybody there knew me, and I was—I wanted to—I I was doing a demonstration there, and I thought, well, I'll mm-hmm. get there early and go and see the stalls because I've often gone around the Good Food Show. I love it, and I couldn't get to a single stall because everybody wanted a signature or a photograph or right. a selfie or something, and I thought, oh my god, mm-hmm. this is what it's like if you're, um, you know, Jamie Oliver—terrible. Yeah, a,
0: t- a taste of that. No, thank you. <laughs> now, one of the things that the Bake Off fans will always remember and love you for um, was the 2017 final um, where you <laughs> prematurely announced the winner. Is that fair to say? What? what, what tell us what happened. Oh, in your own, I, you're in your absolutely account.
1: right. I, I mean, it was the worst. I think that was probably the worst two days of my life. I mean, it sounds so ridiculous <laughs> because I ke- I kept saying to myself, you know, when I'd done it, I felt so terrible. What happened was we were in Bhutan, my husband and I, we were having holiday. <clears throat> and um we'd been walking in the mountains and it was very remote and there were no signals. And I got we got back to our little um hotel and we were having a siesta and he was asleep beside mm-hmm. me, and I thought I'd have a look on there was reception, and I thought, oh wonderful, there's reception. And the first thing that popped up was a a tweet from the production company of Bake Off saying, don't forget to congratulate the winner after 10.30. And I thought, mm-hmm. oh, my God, it's after 10.30. And I quickly tweeted, bravo, Sophie. And as I pressed send, I, I suddenly thought, oh, gosh, that's funny. I didn't see that Paul or Sandy or Noel had congratulated her. And I sort of, <laughs> and then immediately... <laughs> I up, up, up up popped a tweet from Emma Freud, and it said, "Eek! It's tonight." Delete, delete. Well, of course, <laughs> then I panicked and I tried to delete it. And Of course, I I couldn't work my phone. My my brain had just gone into absolute freeze mode. Of course, I couldn't. Yeah. So I rang my PA in London. I mean, in in the Cotswolds where she worked, and. Um, she said, don't worry, I've already tweeted, I've already deleted it. She had deleted she it 86 is. seconds after I'd done it, but right. it was too late. It had gone viral. And so. Well, yeah. Everybody knew that I'd given away the winner. And, and it was terrible <laughs> because people were, people were tweeting things like, you've ruined my life. I mean, I don't know oh, how no, I can live. Really? I mean, uh, uh, very uh, dramatic. <laughs> they were, and I, I mean, I kept trying for the next two days. I kept trying to say to myself, Look, it's not the end of the world. It's not war. It isn't a, mm-hmm. you know, it's only telly. It's only cake. You're only for human, God's sake. you
0: know. Yeah, but of it's course, it's ca- felt absolutely. terrible. <laughs> I felt dreadful.
1: <laughs> anyway, I am I am famously indiscreet. I have always said to people, never, never tell me a secret because I will blab it because mm-hmm. I'll forget that it's a secret. <laughs> it's not that I wanted to. Anyway, no. I, I did that by mistake, no. accident.
0: The fertility doctor Jan Karbat was renowned for getting amazing results. Women who were desperate for children would visit him at his Rotterdam clinic. Many would leave pregnant. But when the clinic closed, rumours circulated about the methods the doctor used to achieve his success. My name's Jenny Kleeman, and I've been investigating what happened in Karbat's clinic. It's the story of a doctor who was determined to create life by any means possible. The Immaculate Deception, a brand new podcast from something else. Coming on March 18th, wherever you get your podcasts. I must ask you about your husband because this is quite inspirational for me. Is it true you don't live together? Uh, <laughs> well, we,
1: we very nearly live together. Um, we, it's always right. been a slight mis- misnomer. I mean, it's true that he still has a house of his own and is down the road. Okay. But he sleeps every night in my house. And right. um, and then he gets up in the morning and makes me a cup of tea, which is very welcome. And then he disappears. He goes downstairs, feeds the dogs, maybe takes them for the walk, and then disappears. He used to always disappear to his own house and do stuff there
0: because
1: uh-huh. he's retired, so he's just always busy doing things, but they're gardening or maintenance or something. Now he tends to spend his time um, doing my garden which he's rather taken over. (laughs) So so I don't see him till lunchtime and then he disappears again. So it's really perfect. But the best thing about having two houses is we haven't had to face that Mm -hmm. question of how do you, if you combine all your stuff and you're, he's over 70, two of us over 70 with a lifetime of kit, it's going to be a mammoth Mm -hmm. task for one of us to chuck out half of our stuff to make room. So... That's why we kept the house, really, because we haven't got round to it. But what we will do, because we're now building our what he r- rudely calls our even-tied home, <laughs> we're, we're, we're building a sort of <laughs> so-called downsized ha- house, which is in my farmyard because I have a farm next door. And so we're turning fa- that old farmhouse, is now going to be our house. And so he's now supervising the builders and doing the garden for that. And I don't see him from day to day. But one fine day, we're going to have to sell his house, get rid of a lot of his stuff, Mm -hmm. sell my house, get rid of a lot of that stuff and move in together.
0: Well, I wondered if, if it was the secret to a happy marriage not living together.
1: Well, I definitely think the secret to a happy marriage is space between you. And also, you know what? I think the secret to surviving when one of you dies is having interests, some interests in common, but some interests that are not that your partner is not necessary to. I mean, when my first husband mm-hmm. died, I think that next two years were the worst two years of my life because I really loved him deeply, and he died, mm-hmm. um, yeah, about eighteen years ago now. But what kept me going was that I had all this work that was nothing to do with him. You know, my my mm-hmm. restaurant company, he had been the chairman of it, but he wasn't in the daily, Yeah, we didn't do anything together. I did all the organization and the mm-hmm. running of it, and I was the managing director, and he was a rather distant chairman. Mm-hmm. But, uh, of course, I missed him dreadfully. But for for widows who don't have that work or some hobby or something you know, that they're deeply into, that is theirs rather than theirs Mm. and his, Mm -hmm. suffer terribly when they're widowed. So I think you have to have separate interests.
0: Do you think independence is key to resilience?
1: Yes, a degree of independence. I think to put all your eggs in one basket is dangerous because it's Mm. just, you know... It's just so awful when you're left on your own. Um, but I think independence gives you all sorts of things. It gives you, if you can manage by yourself, mm-hmm. it gives you more confidence and more, less nervous, really
0: the whole podcast series is centered around extraordinary people um and you know you you represent that in, in so many different ways and you know a huge part of your life which has been truly extraordinary is the story of your relationship with your late husband rain um again it goes back to being a little bit unorthodox i i suppose would you would you yeah. is it fair to call mm-hmm. it that what, what's your kind of version of the... Because I, when I researched you, know, I read Questionable Daily Mail and, and I was like, well, is it factual? Oh, I, I don't never. know. I'd love to hear it from your from your point of view.
1: Well, no, the, the truth is, I mean, I, I, I try not to talk about this because it usually just um, produces more stories. Um, mm. But the truth is that um, I fell in love with my husband 13 years before... We told anybody. Mm -hmm. And it sort of suited me at the time from a a sort of practical point of view because I wasn't desperate to get married. I didn't want to have a baby badly. I was in my 20s. I'd I'd fallen in love with him when I was 21, and he was much older than me. He was nearly 40 when we um, Mm -hmm. fell for each other. And he was married. And so, you know, I... (laughs) You know, I knew it was wrong, but I couldn't stop it and so forth. Anyway, we had a 13-year secret affair. And then I suddenly, when I got to be 34, I suddenly wanted a baby, or 33, I think. And I desperately wanted a baby. And at that point, we um, decided that we would tell everyone. And it was it was dreadful because... He, he was married to a wonderful woman. He was a family friend. Mm-hmm. So we had to fess up, and that was painful for everybody, horrible. But I don't know how I would have done it. You know, people say to me, if you know it was wrong, why did you do it? Well, you show me somebody who's really deeply in love with somebody who does, who doesn't put it above everything. Absolutely, um, yeah. And then lots of people have done
0: worse things. And you stood the test of time as well.
1: Yes, I know. I, I know it was. It was. It, you know, I knew. I knew at the time he was the love of my life, and and I mean, I, mm. um, and we had, you know, we had, I don't know, uh, thirty four years together or something.
0: Mm. And then he died.
1: And then the most extraordinary thing was that I then discovered at my advanced age. Uh, when I fell in love with John Playfair, who's my husband now, mm. when I was seventy, seventy, I think.
0: Yeah. 70. Right. Okay. Which again is quite <laughs> phenomenal because that is a time where some people would be, you know, winding down, writing themselves off, and actually you began a new chapter. Um, Tell me where the confidence comes from and the energy comes from to do Well, I do don't that.
1: know. I mean, I always think that the energy comes from just being, you know, lucky, healthy, um, happy disposition. I don't know. You know, I, I've always thought it was about serotonin levels in your brain. But I was listening to Liana Bird's um, podcast this morning. You know, she does this um, Geek Chicks, I think it's called Geek Chicks. Chic Geeks or something, it's about, um, it's it's science, you know, and she makes, popularises the latest science stories. Mm -hmm. And she's just told me that apparently it's not all about serotonin levels in your brain that makes you happy, but I thought it was. And certainly whatever it is, I've got it that makes you luckily optimistic, cheerful, glass half full type of person. And I, I don't think that's a virtue. I don't think anybody um, can be praised for having that. I, I think mm. you're born with it. Or you yeah. somehow acquire it, nothing to do with you. But anyway, so I'm always cheerful. I always think, um, you know, if something goes wrong, my attitude tends to be, well, that didn't work, um, better try again. Or that didn't mm-hmm. work, better try something else. What I never do is Say, oh my God, that's the most terrible thing! It failed. Mm-hmm. It, it, I just, I'm much more likely to look forward to what could happen mm. rather than something <laughs> that's dreadful that's happened.
0: I did wonder, though, if actually now would be a difficult time for you because you know, obviously, normally I would be meeting you face to face. We'd be in a studio, but you know, you're in your house, I'm in mine. We're communicating over video conference, and we are all in in the midst of the lockdown. And as we've said in, in this interview, you are extremely busy, you know, with your career, with all your achievements. How are you finding pressing the pause button and being in lockdown when you're such a busy woman? Well, do you know,
1: I've always wanted to have a pause button in my life because I do take on too much <laughs> generally. And I mm-hmm. and the, the prospect of lockdown, I thought, oh, great. I said, be able to lie in the sun. It's beautiful weather. I will be in the garden. I'll sort of pick flowers and I'll... Um, walk the dogs and I won't do anything and it'll be like being on holiday. Well, of course, it hasn't been like that. I mean, this morning was absolutely typical. The one thing that drives me to distraction and when I do become rather rude and and, um, unreasonable is that I cannot master technology. And as you know, this morning I took a techie, um, my assistant, (laughs) who's a bit more (laughs) techie savvy than me, uh, and... It took us about 40 minutes to get all this technology to work so that I could talk to you.
0: You were worth the wait.
1: <laughs> <laughs> i tell you what, I have spent so much of my time in the last um, month struggling with Zoom or mm-hmm. Skype or one of these things because I'm not good at it, A, I'm technophobe, B, mm-hmm. I have the worst broadband in England and no signal, practically right. no signal. So everybody says, oh, it'll be easy. Just answer the phone and it'll work. It doesn't. And so I spend a lot of my time, especially if the podcast or whatever it is, is live. And some poor interviewer is on the other end waiting for me to turn up. And I don't yeah. turn up. And they're ringing every <laughs> you know, 16 times trying to get through to me. Anyway, so I hate that. And yeah. I'm spending a lot of my time doing it. So that part is not good. I enjoy the chatting mm-hmm. to you once we can do it. I love, I'm such an egotist. I love talking about myself and I love talking <laughs> and meeting new people. I love being interviewed, but I don't like the stuff that goes with it when you're in lockdown. Yeah. The, the great thing is, um, I've, um, I have really started serious walking because being told that I'm allowed out for an hour a day to walk the dog. The dog's never been Mm -hmm. so well walked before in its life, so the two of them, I've got two (laughs) Cavalier spaniels And that usually goes very well, but I have to tell you this morning it didn't go terribly well because one of them... Oh, really? I've got one of these long leads that, um, you know, that sort of contract and and stretch. And Mm -hmm. she was on the long lead, and suddenly out of the, the... just near my house, a chicken... Cross the road. And these two dogs just went for the chicken. And at first it was quite funny because I had them on the lead and they couldn't catch her. And I was trying to sort of reel them in. But the stupid chicken then ran towards me. And of course, one of the dogs got the chicken. Oh no, well, that's and country pulled life. An enormous amount of feathers. Honestly, this poor yeah. chicken, it did get away, but it lost a lot of feathers on the road.
0: Oh goodness. Okay. And
1: I've now got to ring up the farmer and tell him that I'm my dog savaged his chicken. Now, that isn't something that normally
0: happens to me. It was awful. <laughs> that wouldn't happen in awful. London, that's for sure. <laughs> would well, well, it might savage a fox or something. Yeah. Yeah, well, yeah. It, it's been um, really inspiring uh, to talk to you. You know, I, I do feel like you're sort of on top of the world career-wise and you, you have conquered so much in your personal and professional life um, and given back to, to so many people. I wondered if you had anything else that you wanted to achieve in, in professional, in the foodie world or just in your uh, personal life?
1: No, you know, I write novels um, and I've written eight of them. And my what I really want to do before I die is become a screenwriter. I want to, right, okay. I want one of my novels to be made into a Sunday night drama. They're rather, I always write Mm -hmm. family love stories. And um, I think my latest ones are a trilogy of three novels, which I have been trying to get on um, to BBC or ITV or something or other. haven't tried Netflix Mm -hmm. or Amazon yet, but anyhow, I keep not managing it. So my great desire is to get one of my novels at least onto this little screen and then I could have a go at something else, which would be, I mean, I've written a few screens, um, treatments and things, but I've never had one of my plays on the screen. I feel that
0: giving up isn't in your vocabulary though.
1: (laughs) No, no, it's not. (laughs) Well, I might have to try something else, but no, I do have a few other things I want to do.
0: Well, I'll look forward to to watching that one day. I believe it will happen. (laughs)
1: Oh, do you, Katie? Katie, Katie, uh, you stick around. Keep telling me that. Good. Thank <laughs> Well, <you. laughs> I, I
0: just think with, with with optimism and hard work, m- most things are doable, aren't they? They are. They are. Mm. They are. Well, it's been absolutely amazing uh, to talk to you. Um, so your your new book, let's give your new book a plug. If people want to try some of your vegetarian recipes, it's The Vegetarian Kitchen, isn't it?
1: Kitchen, it is.
0: Yep. And they can buy that now. And if they want to watch your documentary, it is Leaf Journey with My Daughter. And it's on uh, Channel 4, It's uh, still available to watch now and catch up, isn't it? Yes, it is. Yeah. yeah. Well, thank you very much for joining me today. It's been lovely to connect with you over technology. <laughs> <laughs> thank you, Katie. Thanks for listening to Casey Piper's Extraordinary People. If you haven't already, please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. If you enjoyed this, please help us spread the word, rate and review the show where you got this, or share on socials. Our kids have said to us since we've moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived.